Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I almost wish it had just been written like her chaotic captions on Instagram. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that a bit too. I'm Jessica Bennett. And I'm Susie Banaharam. And this is In Retrospect, where each week we revisit a cultural moment from the past that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. This week we have a special episode. The long-awaited memoir from Britney Spears has finally hit stands. And Susie and I have stayed up all night reading it, and we're here to talk about it. It's Britney, bitch. Okay, give me your first impressions. I know you were up for a while last night reading, (laughs) delving into this memoir. Well, my first impressions are a lot of the book has been covered in the last week or so. So a lot of the sort of big surprises have already been revealed. It was sort of interesting to read it for yourself, though, because I felt like In some ways, it answers some questions, but there are still so many questions unanswered. Like I have so many questions that we can talk about as we go through some of the topic areas. In a weird way, it feels a little thin. I, I hate to say that because getting to hear from Brittany herself after so long and after she felt like her voice had been essentially extinguished for so long Mm -hmm. is, you know, valuable. But in a weird way, I feel like I've learned more about her from following her Instagram than I did in this book, because in some ways it feels very sanitized. It feels very much like it's been polished for a mainstream audience. Yeah. And then they just like, you know, dropped in some, you know, salacious revelations because they knew that's what would sell the book, which isn't entirely fair to Brittany because she had a ghostwriter. So there's a lot going on here that goes into a book right. that, you know, isn't just from the author. What were your first impressions? Yeah, I mean, we know so much about Britney Spears, like for better or worse. I think a lot of us who have followed her case and the conservatorship and read the articles about it and were fans back in the day, we just know a lot. And so 
to read a book, you're kind of expecting to get things that you didn't already know. And in fact, she does, I think, confirm a lot of things that were suspected. But like you said, it feels thin in parts. It's pretty vague in some of the areas where I really wanted details. And I found myself like a couple of hours in just frantically Googling who the ghostwriter was because I wanted more information (laughs) about that person. (laughs) What did you find? I'm actually curious. He's a journalist. There's not much there. I don't I don't know. I don't know. It'd be fascinating to hear from him because there were just lines in it where I was like, that just doesn't sound like her. And and who am I to say what sounds like Britney Spears? But as you said, we know so much about how she is today from her Instagram, or at least we think we do, that we kind of have this idea in our minds of what her voice sounds like. And it's not quite as polished as I think the book is. Yeah, it's interesting she chose a man as the ghostwriter. I don't think I realized that because I think the name is like Sam something. It's like a generic name that could be either way. And I assumed it was a woman just because so much of the book is about this tension in her life of is she a child? You know, sort of the the line from her song, not a girl, not yet a woman. Right. This kind of tension of was she allowed to grow up? Did she grow up too fast? Has she not grown up at all? So it feels like a woman might have handled it better. I don't know. I mean, there are definitely lines where you're like, Brittany definitely didn't say this. And then there are lines where it clearly is something yeah. that Brittany said, like that he's trying to infuse her voice in it. Well, did you notice that I swear to God, there was a lot of I swear to God. I swear to God, yeah. yeah which I thought was cute. Yeah. And then there was like some repetitiveness that you felt had to have come from her, right? Because mm-hmm. why would he just be like repeating things if they weren't from her perspective? I almost wish, I mean, this is one of those wishes that would never come true. But I almost wish it had just been written like her chaotic captions on Instagram. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that a bit too. Well, it's interesting because one of the last big celebrity memoirs that we read, I think, was Pamela Anderson's. And she wrote that book herself. And it was really chaotic at times. Like there were these huge swaths of her poetry that would just come in the middle of chapters (laughs) that was a little strange, but it really felt like her. And I was sort of like, I wish we were getting some long rambling Britney captions (laughs) in the middle of this. Like I almost feel like they could have just woven that in or something because we do know that's her voice. We know her voice now, you know? The one other thing I want to say, because you mentioned, like, for those of us who followed her, like, we sort of know so much about her. Mm-hmm. And that's true. I mean, I obviously followed Britney. I was a huge fan. I am a huge fan. I don't know if you know this about me, but one of my greatest accomplishments of all time is that Britney Spears follows me on <gasps> Twitter. That's <laughs> actually amazing. It's amazing. It's, like, less meaningful now that none of us are on Twitter. But I think the reason she follows me, I never, I never figured out when she started following me. I just noticed one day she was and was like, this is it. I can retire now. I think it's because when she did her speech to the court about her conservatorship, I had a tweet that went viral about how lucid she sounded and how much you could just tell that she actually was perfectly capable Capable. of managing herself. And I have to assume that's why she started following me. But anyway, what occurred to me when I was reading all this last night is that it's easy to forget because she's come to represent so many things beyond what she's accomplished, Mm -hmm. just how insanely accomplished Accomplished she was. Yeah, I know. It was almost like she was going through and then this album came out and then this album came out like in these really short time spans. It almost was as if she could have spent more time discussing that. Like, it's just incredible, yeah. the, her her production. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, she sold 150 million records worldwide. She's sold 70 million in the US alone. She's 
got 15 Guinness World Records. Like I didn't Incredible. even know. It's like, yeah. it's like, you know, she has Grammys, she has MTV work. Yeah. She, she's done all this stuff. She could have filled the whole book just with she, her Yeah, with just her accomplishments. And she is a genius in this arena. Like she, in many ways, outside of Madonna, has come to be synonymous with pop music. Yeah. So one of the things I feel a little sad about in the book is how much of the book is about all this other bullshit Mm. and how she doesn't get to really be like, I am amazing. I mean, she, she, you definitely see that in her and you see her grasping for that, but she's been made to feel small for so long that it's almost, she just mentions it the way I mentioned graduating from college. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. she's like, and then then I won the Grammy and then this unbelievable thing happened. And I'm like, dude, that's crazy. Right. (laughs) Right. Some things that I didn't know beforehand that I think the book really hit on. She really starts from the beginning. It's sort of a narrative arc of her life chronologically. And she had a lot of trauma in her childhood, yeah. like re- real, real trauma, like abuse and violence and alcoholism and, you know, the death of a grandmother and starting drinking when she was, I think, at age 13 with her mom and so much of the stuff that it's easy to see how there would be lasting effects of that. Yeah. I mean, I guess we should have said at the top of this spoiler alert, because we are going to talk about something in the book. (laughs) Spoiler alert. And spoiler alert. So one thing I do want to mention in that regard, I was really shocked by the story about her dad's mom. Yeah. Like the, the book starts with this anecdote where her father's mother died by suicide And, you know, in this very dramatic way, she had lost a child and she goes and she, I think she shoots herself on On the the grave. And so it really does set the tone for like how traumatic Mm -hmm. her entire childhood would be really at the hands of her father primarily. Right. But also she has a lot of resentment about her mother and the way that her mother created an environment that was like very chaotic and there was a lot of screaming. And so, you know, the first bit of the book is really about how she escaped into herself, into her music, that that's how she sort of Mm -hmm. found some freedom. And then pretty early on, she starts performing. Right. Very early on. The other thing that was noteworthy is that the mother who commits suicide was Jean, which is her middle middle name. So she was named after her. But yeah, that really does set the tone at the very beginning of the book. Yeah. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. 
take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There are, like, two sort of central tensions in the book. Mm -hmm. One is, I mean, obviously the book is titled The Woman in Me. Right. So this idea of being a woman is very central to the book. But the way it's presented is sort of this tension between not a girl, not yet a woman. Is she a child? She talks a lot about regressing. Like, she she talks about Benjamin Button a lot and how when things are hard or difficult for her, she quote-unquote, ages backwards. She has this real sense that when she is vulnerable, she starts to feel like a child. And that just as she is becoming a woman, just as she is finally getting to the point where she might have been able to take ownership of her own life, this incident occurs, this period of time after her children, and then her father puts her in this conservatorship, and then she is essentially infantilized for 13 years. So then she is just literally not allowed to become a woman. But at the same time, you know, she has had the adult responsibility of supporting her entire family since she was 15. Right. So it is like this sort of thing that she keeps returning to. Like, was Mm -hmm. I a child? Was I a ghost child? At one point she says, or I felt like a ghost child. Am I a woman? What does it mean to be a woman? It's like a very central theme of the book. Did that feel like it landed for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that we've talked about prior to reading any of this and just our observations is that there is this sort of sense of like, she didn't get to fully grow up and there's some ways about her that feel really frozen in time. Like she is still living in the early 2000s and she does still feel much younger than she is. But like you said, in so many ways, she was adultified when she was so young. Like she talks about yeah. various interviews in the media. And who is the interview with the, the old guy, Ed something? Oh, you mean the story with Ed McMahon? Oh yeah, McMahon. Okay, yes. Yeah. So Ed McMahon on Star Search. I can't remember exactly how old she is, but she's very young. She's not yet a teenager. And she goes on and they have this banter and he's asking her if she has a boyfriend. First of all, like it's too young for her to be having a boyfriend. But then he's like, what about me? Yes, and so this is right. like a, I don't know how old he was. I remember him having gray hair. Yeah, But just little things like that, that she touches on at various points where it's like she's being 
treated like an adult, but at the same time, totally infantilized as she actually grows older. Yeah, it's like funny because, I mean, honestly, I used to watch Star Search. I guess okay. uh, we're going back to the narrative of how much TV I watch. <laughs> you know, I think he's he was trying to be like charming. It's like a banter. Like, do you have any boyfriends? Right. And right. she's like, boys are gross or boys are mean. Oh, and yeah. he's she just says like, I'm not cute. mean. Yes. You know, and he thinks it's sweet. But another tension in this book, which is, I think, the second central tension, is this idea that she craves attention. She wants to perform. She wants to be on stage. She wants attention. But also when it happens, it terrifies her. Mm -hmm. Like she literally goes backstage after that moment with Ed McMahon and she weeps. And she constantly talks about wanting the spotlight, but then needing to get away from it. And then it gets worse. The spotlight keeps getting harsher and harsher. Like as time goes on, it's like the attention gets crueler. It gets more aggressive. It becomes physically violent with the paparazzi. And so... She is constantly dipping her toe out and then running away, dipping her toe out and running away. And now she is again in this situation where she has to kind of decide, like, how much is she going to return to public life, right? Like she sort of said after the conservatorship that she wasn't going to do that. She's just going to like chill for a bit. But this book is a return to public life, right? So there is this feeling that you get that, she can't quite decide what she wants her relationship to be to attention. Well, and it was interesting too, I didn't know that she had social anxiety. And so she talks about that in the book and she names it as such. And she describes how, you know, yeah, of course she could go on stage and she could perform for thousands of people and do it well. But then in small groups, she would have a lot of anxiety and get really self-conscious and be really embarrassed about what she would say. And that, too, is sort of an interesting tension. I mean, there's a lot of these tensions and sort of juxtapositions in the way that she is or has come to be. And, And I feel like that was another one. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is she mentions that when she became a judge on Fear Factor many years later. Yeah. She hated it. Like she hated right, the right. pressure of it. She didn't like judging other people. She, Which was so surprising so because surprising. you think of her as such an amazing performer. You know, another way in which this comes out is the way she describes this Diane Sawyer interview as so horrible for her. Yes. Let's back up for a second yeah, and please. explain what that is. So there's the whole Justin section. We'll get into Justin and all of that. But after her breakup with Justin Timberlake, her father essentially forces her, her father and her team force her to do this interview with Diane Sawyer, who, you know, was his former boss, my former boss, and who was literally one of the most famous women in the world, another one of these sort of like big name interviewers. And she describes this interview as really a breaking point for her. She had a horrible time. She felt like it was so harsh. And what's so interesting is when you watch it, because of course I rewatched the whole Mm -hmm. thing over the weekend, is she's actually handling herself with enormous poise. Yes. Like she is actually totally on it. She seems incredibly smart. She comes across as in control of the situation she's in. And yet what she is feeling is all this anxiety, all this pressure. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting that she does have this ability to mask, right? Which I think is very common of people who come from traumatic childhoods, right? That like you kind of, have to have a public persona because otherwise everyone knows all the crazy things in your house. So you just like put on this mask and you go out there and you pretend like everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And then the minute you're alone again, you can kind of fall apart. And that's kind of what she describes that interview as. 
Right. And I mean, I imagine that's such a big part of being a performer too. You have to put on a brave face and you have to look good while doing it. And so you go out there and you do it and whatever is festering underneath the surface stays there until you get backstage. And she does at many different points throughout the book describe weeping backstage. Yeah, actually, did you see that Katy Perry clip that went viral? Oh, That's I don't like think so. it actually went viral recently, but it's from an old documentary about her where Russell Brand breaks up with her. Like he's telling her he's divorcing okay. her either over text or he calls her. It's like it's horrible. And she's literally about to go on stage and she's weeping and then she like shakes herself off and she literally like gets on one of those lifts that's going to pull her up on stage. And the next thing you know, she's just like snapped into it Whoa. and she's like performing. Wow. And that's sort of what I kept picturing when yes. Brittany was describing that. So the interesting thing about the Diane Sawyer interview is like, honestly, I did not, I don't know, you know, if you've watched it recently, I don't think the questions are so cruel. Like there are definitely some questions you just wouldn't ask now. You would just acknowledge that she was like, I think she was 20 or 21 at the time. So there are just some questions like an an adult woman wouldn't ask what mm -hmm. is essentially still like a child about her love life or her virginity, which right. is, you know, crazy so there are definitely some things that feel dated, but she is trying to be empathic. I mean, I just know when Diane is being harsh and when she is trying to connect, mm. to me, it was very clear that she was trying to connect. So it's also interesting what a divide there is from what I think Diane was trying to do and how Brittany received it. Yeah, And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know, she sort of says, I was so raw. I was so vulnerable. I had just gone through this breakup with Justin and I wasn't ready to have it mined. And she, there's a part where she cries and you can see she's so upset that she's crying. She literally says, ooh, ooh. I, I, like, oh, I remember watching this. Yes, that? yes. Oh my goodness. Hello. Ew. Strong, Brittany. Um, yeah, and in that moment, you see that she's like, doesn't want to be mined in this way, that mm -hmm. she's trying to protect herself, but that just by virtue of being here, that's impossible. And I think that's also something that's changed in culture. Like now you would just release something on Instagram. You wouldn't need to do that Diane Sawyer right. interview. I mean, the other thing that is so harrowing to read about is just how much control her father had over her life. I mean, obviously we knew that that's what the whole conservatorship was about, but even with this interview, which was before the conservatorship, he shows up with the whole team and basically yeah. demands that she's going to go on the show. She has no prep time. You know, she doesn't want to do it, but he says what goes. Well, and she's also, she says a lot about how she's a people pleaser. So she also has a hard time saying no, even when mm -hmm. she, doesn't want to do something, a different sort of star might have said like, no, get out of my apartment. I'm not right. doing it. But that she sort of does have this, I think she kind yeah, of describes like southern, it almost like a Southern desire to be a yes. good girl, to yeah. please, not to say too much. But I think it's probably worth actually backing up and explaining why she's doing this interview because it's essentially because Justin Timberlake has broken her heart and is waging a sort of publicity battle against her. So Let's talk about the Justin parts of the book because yeah. they are a lot. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So most of us know that Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears dated. They had met years earlier on the Mickey Mouse Club. And then they began seeing each other. And at a certain point, they were living together while, I believe, on their respective tours. And she talks in the book about how he cheats on her multiple times. And she pretty much knows this at the time, but doesn't say anything. She then cheats on him. Anyhow, it's, you know, it's volatile in some ways, but she still very much loves him. And then ultimately he breaks up with her in a text message while she <laughs> is filming uh, one of her videos. Um, fucking believable. Um, so I imagine that was another one of those moments where she's having to put on a face and go out and perform while inside she's just reeling. And so what happens next is she's completely broken. And I, you know, I remember that feeling of being that age and being in love and having your heart broken. And she just is devastated. So she goes back to her hometown. She's like sort of comatose. She's in Louisiana. He at one point comes to visit her, I believe. But then what happens is he goes on his solo tour. He puts out the song Cry Me a River, which has the video that I remember, and I'm sure you do too, yeah, Susie, from that time where there is an actress who looks like her in the video. Who dressed like her. Dressed like her and is cheating on him in the video. Yeah. Uh, and so suddenly it was like, oh, poor Justin. Britney cheated on him. Britney's such a villain. And essentially he pushed that narrative forward and she became the villain in this breakup. So I think what's so interesting is a lot of this was known, right? Like before right. the book, we knew that they had had this relationship and that he had framed it as her having cheated on him. And, you know, a couple of years ago when there was a bit of a reckoning around her, he did put out this apology. But the one thing in the book that we did not know is that she had had an abortion and that, 
you know, Justin had really pushed her into that abortion. And in fairness to him, he sort of said, I'm not, I'm not ready to be a father. And, you know, she didn't want to have a kid with someone who didn't want to be a father, but she describes it as one of the most agonizing things she ever had to experience. And there's this really sad scene where they decide because they don't want it to leak that she has to do a self-administered abortion. She takes pills. So she's not under a doctor's care. And she says it's just like excruciating and she's just lying on the floor in the bathroom. And then this detail, I just the strumming has. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for knowing exactly what I'm talking about. Because I was like, literally, this is my worst nightmare. She says at one point, Timberlake thought music would help. So he went and got his guitar and he laid there with me strumming it. Like, See, I sort of, I, I don't know. I was like, they must have been so, they were so young. She's in so much pain. She's lying on the floor. He must have just been desperate to try to comfort her in some way. That was my interpretation. It's such a sweet interpretation because my interpretation was when I was in my 20s and a guy pulled out a guitar to strum oh. it, it was always horrible. So the idea that while I'm like lying on the floor bleeding, he's like, hey, baby, I have a song for <sighs> you. Just the image in my mind is the, I mean, what you're describing actually is probably more accurate and probably more sweet, but I just picture <laughs> this douchebag with his guitar and like it's hard it's hard not to picture him as a douchebag because there's this whole other scene she describes of him when they're like walking around in new york and oh they god. run into genuine. genuine oh god that i screenshot that's actually the one thing in the whole book that i screenshotted <laughs> because so it was crazy. so cringe it was like, so, she's literally, he's, he's like, literally like faux shiz faux shiz yeah, he's like, like, like what's hey, homie yeah he yes yes and she's just like mortified for him so he does seem so douchey in this whole thing. Like he does not come off well, but you know, yeah, in fairness, he's pretty young too, but really where I think he is the villain is the crime of the river thing, which you've talked about. It's like, he really leans into this idea that she has betrayed him. He uses it to promote the album yeah. in large part. It's why it sells so much. Right. He goes on a radio tour. He talks about her sex life. He reveals that she's not a virgin, which for whatever reason, her virginity had become, her team had sort of pushed this idea of her being a virgin, which she wasn't even when she met Justin Timberlake. That's another revelation in the book. Mm -hmm. He essentially uses her. She says he's the first love of her life. He's her mm -hmm. first kiss. And then he completely betrays her, setting the tone for like all the betrayals that are yet to come. Yeah. And that too, I think is another theme of the book is all these betrayals by men, largely. Yeah. So the next significant romantic relationship she has is with Kevin Federline, the father of her children. And the thing that really stuck out to me and that I just felt for her so much in her descriptions of that relationship is when I believe they have one of the kids and she may be pregnant with another and he is on tour because Kevin Federline is now K-Fed and he's like trying to, you know, establish his rap career and is getting some small success and is really feeling himself. And he goes on tour and won't speak to her. So she flies to New York to talk to her husband and the security guards turn her away. He literally will not see his wife who's pregnant with their child. And then she flies to Vegas to try to talk to him there. And the same thing happens. And I was just thinking to myself, can you imagine you're trying to talk to your partner, the father of your children, and he just won't even speak to you? 
Well, and also, by the way, a man you are supporting completely. Like right. she's paying all his bills. This music career, in quotes, right. is entirely funded by her. And yet he's suddenly treating her like garbage. And I will say she did get a shot off on this. Like at oh, one yeah. point when she was talking about him being a rapper, she was like, bless his heart. Yeah, like, I loved that part. I love that part. I love that part. <laughs> that was like the one part where it was like she was clearly doing a sarcasm line, whether yeah. that was her or the ghostwriter. It it worked. <laughs> yeah, it really worked. Yeah. And he just is such a scumbag. Like he comes off so poorly and actually, she doesn't go in on him as much as I expected. And I think in large part, that has to do with the fact that they are always in this ongoing custody yeah. issue with their kids, even though now the kids are older. But, you know, my takeaway from that is that Kevin essentially used those kids as a weapon. And, you know, from what we know now, he essentially has never worked since. He has used those kids to support him and his entire family. He has another family, you know, like other kids and a wife. And he has never worked since then and has just completely lived off of her. And he used those kids like a cudgel to make sure that he could have access to her money. Mm -hmm. And that is so depressing too, because the passages are so touching how much she wanted to be a mom, how much those children meant to her, how much she just like loved to be around them. And then, you know, they're so young when they get taken away from her, they're like five months and 17 months, I think. And that's what leads to the very famous head shaving incident, which she does address in the book. Yeah, that was one of the parts where I felt like she did give a little bit more description and context than had been out there. And so I really appreciated reading about that. But she was grieving, like she was grieving the loss of her children and she was out of her mind yeah, in pain in sadness in panic in fear that she would have them taken away permanently. And so now you can really understand somebody in that state, like she is absolutely out of her mind yeah. with grief about losing her children. And also her aunt, one of her closest relatives has just died of cancer. She has postpartum. Like it's this perfect storm. Everything is falling apart around her. And now she's being told she can't see her children. And it's in the midst of that, that she goes to try and see them and she's turned away. And that's sort of what leads up to the moment where she goes into the hair salon and takes the shaver and shaves her head. Yeah. Which of course, you know, became the cover of every tabloid in the world. And we've all seen pictures of it. It's like, you don't even need to describe it because we all know it. Yeah. But she describes a bit about what that was and how in some ways that was just a fuck you to everyone who had tried to infantilize her, who tried to adultify her, who tried to sexualize her, who tried to make her pretty, who tried to make her into a good girl, who tried to make her into someone who followed the rules. Like that was the ultimate thing that she could do to be like, screw you. I am going to now be ugly. In fact, I think I have a quote from the book, which is, I'd been eyeballed so much growing up. I'd been looked up and down and had people telling me what they thought of my body since I was a teenager. Shaving my head and acting out were my ways of pushing back. And she says later on, I'd been the good girl for years. I'd smiled politely while TV show hosts leered at my breasts, while American parents said I was destroying their children by wearing a crop top while executives patted my hand condescendingly and second-guessed my career choices, even though I'd sold millions of records, while my family acted like I was evil and I was tired of it. It does feel like this moment of rebellion. There's almost a little bit of catharsis in it. And then, of course, it's immediately turned against her. Well, and the other thing that I found 
I don't know, just sort of harrowing is that she talks about how her mom couldn't even look at her with her shaved head. Yes. Like once her long, beautiful hair was gone, which was so much a part of her identity and which is so much a part of, I think, pop star identity in general, her mother actually couldn't look at her. Yeah, Um, she literally says that to me. So it's like at the same time you're reading this and you're thinking like, oh, it's so great to hear it in her words. I'm hearing you read that quote and I'm like, doesn't sound like her, you know, like it's a little heavy handed. It's like parroting the talking points of like this empowerment, reclaiming of your identity moment um, back to the reader. So I don't know. It's hard. It's like, I'm a little bit torn on how to interpret some of this stuff because while I think it's so important to hear from her perspective, I think that there are parts that feel pretty heavy handed. I will say the thing about this section that really stayed with me This is the time where you really begin to understand how terrifying the paparazzi was to her. Mm -hmm. Like, If there's one thing in the book that becomes very clear, it's really how afraid of them she was, how aggressive they were with her, how much of her life was controlled by their presence and how much she had to evade them or try and get away from them. She wouldn't be able to stay places for very long because the longer she stayed, more would arrive. And I thought that was interesting because it's kind of changed so much. Like now there are more safeguards in place, especially with children, but she was before any of that occurred. So people were saying, why won't you let us have access to photograph your children? And she was, she and Kevin were having to like figure out how to put blankets over their heads so they could still breathe while carrying them out of the house because they didn't want them photographed, which actually it seems like a very sane decision. But, but looks crazy when back, you're doing it. Right, exactly. And back then the the thinking was, well, why is she hiding her kids? She just genuinely does not know how to get away from it. And for all that her father is trying to control her, he's not doing anything to protect her. Nothing. Right, 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 right. right. For you all know? these supposed safeguards in place, there are none as it pertains to this. And then that obviously leads to the head shaving, leads to her being institutionalized. institutionalized very briefly. She's put on like a weekend hold and then sent home early and then again. And then that leads to the infamous conservatorship, which, you know, it's been talked about a lot. I don't know that we have to get into all the details, but I do think the thing that was most interesting to me about this mm-hmm. is I really have so many questions about how she got out of it. Like, I don't, I still I know. don't understand. Well, that understand. was one of the parts where I, you know, my editor brain was like, ah, details, details, details. Yeah. Where yeah. are the details? Like, who, how did you literally change lawyers? How did you argue yeah. this? What exactly was the argument made when you made that 911 call to report your father for conservatorship abuse? Yeah. What was the response on the other line? What then happened? Did the police come to your house? Like, anyway, I have, I have so I many have questions. I have so many questions about this section too. And I have to wonder if some of the sanitizing is for legal reasons, but even, right. you know, it's sense. like, I, I wanted names. Like there's a whole section where she describes again, being institutionalized against her will this time much later toward the end of the conservatorship for a number of months. And this is the point at which the fans, the free Britney fans start to notice that she has gone away and they start to get suspicious. And this is when they start kind of galvanizing to push the questions forward about what is really happening with the conservatorship. But I'm like, what is this institution? What is the name of the institution? Yeah, How did they literally, she couldn't check herself out, I guess not because the dad is a conservator, but yeah. like what was really going on there? And was this a facility for 
mental health? Was it a facility for drug abuse? Like what? Well, she calls it a rehab, which is weird because they're not actually accusing her of taking drugs. She says she was taking natural supplements and that's what caused them to send her. But I feel like also the thing that was really confusing about this section for me is that up until this, you really have a clear sense of how controlled her life is. Like Mm -hmm. at one point she describes her father bugging her house so that he can overhear her conversations. He decides what she eats. He decides when she sleeps. He decides every, it's like the most infantilizing thing. She can't have caffeine. She's not allowed to have a sip of alcohol. If she wants to have a boyfriend, they have to submit to a blood Blood test. test. Right. So you get the sense that she's under this enormous control, but then all of a sudden she's able to escape from it. And we don't actually hear how that happens. Like suddenly she's just like, and then I'm meeting with lawyers and then I'm calling the police. And you're like, but how, how are you meeting with lawyers? Like you're in this like prison essentially I so know, there is I know. it feels like a missing like a big missing piece yes. and I really just Brittany please call I know. me I need those to are, ask you yeah, these questions those are the details we really, and I mean the whole scene in the when she's institutionalized toward the end of the conservatorship it really I mean it sounds like girl interrupted the modern version yes. like she describes a woman who hears voices and there's all these kind of people who are really, really unwell. And then they're force feeding her lithium, which makes her totally lethargic and confused about time and unable to speak clearly. Like all of these things that sound like some Sylvia Plath 1950s shit. Yes. And then the next thing that happens, it's like so quick that section. It's almost like we speed through the section of how she suddenly breaks free from these chains that like seem really hard to break free from. But then suddenly we're in the section where she is giving her statement to the judge in the, you know, famous sort of statement she gives that helps free her from the conservatorship. Right. I was like, how did she get there? (laughs) Like, how did they argue to get that? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then she had to ask for it to be open to the public. Like, how did that work? Anyhow? Yes, we have, we have questions. Yes. And so the testimony, though, is really compelling. I highly recommend going to listen to it. You can find it on YouTube. We can play a little bit of it for you just so you can hear her voice. Um, I also would like to be able to share my story with the world and um, what they did to me instead of it being a hush-hush secret to benefit all of them. I want to be able to be heard on what they did to me by making me keep this in for so long is not good for my heart. I mean, I remember hearing that when she testified and thinking it was so powerful and then reading about it in the book. I mean, again, I have, it's like, how did she write it? What was yeah. the thinking? Did she rehearse? Uh, I don't know. I just, yeah. I still she did have so say many questions. She did a lot of drafts of it, yeah, but like, okay. but you don't really get a sense of like where, I mean, it. Re- I will say the thing about the statement that I love is that it is very much in Brittany's voice. Yes. It is obvious she has written it for herself. You know, a lot of times with something like this, the lawyers would have just written it right. and she would have read it. it. This feels like it is Brittany start to finish. It yeah. is in her own words. Sometimes it's a little circular. Sometimes it's a little chaotic, yeah. but it's super strong. You get the sense that she's completely capable of managing her own life. In fact, it's just sort of shocking. And she brings this up a lot in the book, but I feel like the need to repeat it, which is it is crazy that she is literally doing world tours. She is supporting everyone in her family, plus like a cottage industry of other people. And she is literally being described as incapacitated, unable to make a single decision for herself. Like she is clearly more than capable of running her own life. Like, is she quirky? Is she weird? 
Is she sometimes dealing with mental health issues? Sure. But no more so than a million other celebrities right, right, right. who go through these things and then just come out the other side and don't have their family essentially steal their entire adulthoods so that they can just turn them into like a cash machine, which right. is very clearly what happened here. So she says, you know, in the book, after the conservatorship, she says, I'd been taught through the conservatorship to feel almost too fragile, too scared. That's the price I paid under the conservatorship. They took a lot of my womanhood, my sword, my core, my voice, the ability to say, fuck you. And I know that sounds bad, but there's something crucial about this. Don't underestimate your power. And while this sounds nice, I do feel like the sort of ending of the book is a lot about her trying to figure out what that means. Mm -hmm. Like, how does mm -hmm. that work now that she's yeah. free? I mean, notably, a lot has changed since the book was edited. She and her husband have split. He's referenced in the book as her husband. They didn't have time yeah. to edit it. I mean, things have shifted. And yeah, what does that look like for her? And it's interesting too, what you were saying at the beginning. I mean, she's dipping her toe in and then she's not sure, but now she's put this book out, which has put her very much in the public eye again. And is that where she wants to be? And will she go back to performing? I, I don't, I don't know. Well, also, there's the interesting thing that did you read the Instagram post she just posted being like, I don't like what I'm reading about the book? Oh, I didn't. Yeah. You know, you and I both know how a book works, right? I mean, right. book publishing works. The publisher or her press people have clearly been releasing excerpts of the book on right. people. And they have been doing that in a very strategic way. Like, actually, I think I said to you at some point last week, they're doing a great job with the release because every day it was a new set of headlines. Every day it was like another small Right, a revelation. little bit of information. A little bit of information. Out. Yeah. And then, you know, but it's it does make you wonder how much she's like aware of what her team is doing as per usual, because mm -hmm. then she put out this statement on October 20th. And she said before the book was out, my book's purpose was not to offend anyone by any means. That was me then, that is in the past. I don't like the headlines I'm reading. That's exactly why I mm. quit the business four years ago. Right. So it's like, but, that's but you don't like the headlines you're reading? Like that's what's selling your book. Like your book right. is through the roof pre-sales. Right. And this is why. So I mean, it's like an interesting yeah. thing, right? Again, she has this like relationship with the process. She doesn't like the way fame works. And yeah. yet it it is the way it works. Like it's like she's going to have to either decide that she wants to really run away from it or she wants to be part of it. And if she's going to be part of it, I do think she hasn't yet figured out what that looks like, what she's okay with, how much she's willing to give away for it. And I think her Instagram is such a great example of this, right? Like she is constantly shutting down her Instagram and then coming back. Like she, she wants the attention of the Instagram, but then something happens, it makes her mad and she leaves. And in mm -hmm. fact, right after she posted this Instagram about not liking the book headlines, mm -hmm. she shut down her Instagram and then she was back within a day. You know, it's like this sort of perfect mm -hmm. microcosm of her larger relationship with attention. Mm -hmm. And there was that incident recently where she was dancing with knives. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. She's like dancing with the knives. And so then her fans call the police and have them do a welfare check on her. Right. And so it's like, she can't, even in the Oh, so they weren't real knives, home. right? Like she clarified. She says they were prop knives. Yeah. I mean, even if they were real knives, they weren't dangerous. Like th there was nothing dangerous about her dance routine. But, you know, she does address that in the book. She addresses the way people react to her Instagram because there's also a lot of nudity in her Instagram and her children have complained about that. Or I don't know if it's her children or Kevin Federline or whatever, but 
it has been said that her children don't like that. And she she's it's very provocative at times. At some point she got a stripper pole. And I think people don't really know how to respond to it. And she says something about it. She says, I know that a lot of people don't understand why I love taking pictures of myself naked or in new dresses, but I think if they'd been photographed by other people thousands of times, prodded and posed for people's approval, they'd understand that I get a lot of joy from posing the way I feel sexy and taking my own picture, which I don't, does that totally make sense? I don't know why it didn't totally make sense to me as an example. I mean, I think because there are hints of a ghostwriter or an editor saying the thing that they know needs to be said to justify the behavior in a way that's palatable to the reader. Yeah. And, like I was confused by that. Uh, it, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't have to make sense, but I don't, I mean, the thing that makes me so uncomfortable about Brittany in a lot of ways is that everyone thinks they know. Yeah. And Nobody really fucking knows. <laughs> the fans don't know. The free Britney people don't know. I mean, maybe the ghostwriter knows, but the ghostwriter has an agenda to make the book palatable and make it so that there's not legal issues and make it so that she's not getting criticized for X, Y, and Z. And, you know, being the right amount of mean when she calls Jamie Lynn, her little sister, a real bitch. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. also like kind of making up for it in the end. So it still is like everyone has an agenda. I mean, everyone. It involved, has an it's agenda. It's like the critics have an agenda. The publicists have an agenda. The ghostwriter has an agenda. The book yeah. editor has an agenda. So it is hard to tell. I mean, even some of the fans, right? Like even some of the fans, like some of the Free Britney movement was attention for fans and gave them sort of purpose and meaning. And so some of them haven't been able to let it go. Like there's all well, sorts or of they conspiracy think they know theorists what's online. Best for her. For her. Yeah. And I don't, it's tough too, because the free Britney movement was right. Like they did actually draw attention. And she writes about it in the book to the fact that she was trapped in this thing. And she actually thanks them in the book for yeah. that. But by the same token, there seems to be this sense that everyone knows what's best for Britney Spears. And I don't know that any of us know what's best for, for Britney. Britney Spears. I think that's right. And actually, this is a good place to end it because there was a quote from the book I pulled, which I felt like to me was the essence of the book. So I will read it and we can end on that note. Great. Which is on page 248, she says, I guess what I'm saying is that the mystery of who the real me is, is to my advantage because nobody knows. <laughs> um, that's sort of, that's funny. That's self-aware like if like, she wrote it. You've read this whole book and you still don't know shit about me. <laughs> that is a good place to end it. I mean, yeah, the reality is we don't know, but we will all still keep talking about it. This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a cultural moment you can't stop thinking about and want us to explore in a future episode? Email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod. If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which we may or may not delete. 
You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at Susie B NYC. Also check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Sharon Atia is our researcher and associate producer. Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stump and Katrina Norvell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Additional editing help from Mary Dew and Mike Coscarelli. Sound correction and mastering by Amanda Rose Smith. We are your hosts, Susie Banikaram and Jessica Bennett. We're also executive producers. For even more, check out inretropod.com. See you next week. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.